is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We had a great conversation last week uh, with Deacon Stephen Gridanus. You may know him from um, from his Real Faith Reviews. He's a, a movie reviewer and uh, has a, a column with National Catholic Register, among others. Um, we, we, we talked in that conversation about um, forming our consciences for the vote. And there's this beautiful document that the USCCB puts out every four years called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. They've been doing this uh, since the mid-70s, I think. And um, we, we brought up the document, and then during the course of the week, uh, the, the document was at least made more prominent again. Maybe it had already been done. Uh, but it's been rejuvenated, brought out again with some new information and some, uh, some new things to think about. And that's available on the USCCB website. It's one of the top banners now. But I also put it up on social media over the course of the week. And and it's just worth going over. This is something that I had never really considered before, um, before becoming Catholic. Because, again, before I became Catholic, uh, my own perception of the world uh, was how I judged the world. And so now within the confines of Catholicism, within this spirit of docility, which is a big one for me, paragraph 87 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, uh, mindful of Christ's words that he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the things their pastors teach them in various forms. That's, that's um, off the top of my head. Uh, I wasn't reading that, so it may be off a little bit, but that's that's the general gist of paragraph 87. And so um, as a result of that, we, we have to look at the world in a different way. We're not the arbiters of right and wrong, and we have to have, uh, we have, to have the right inputs, right? We, we make sense of what we make sense of based on the kinds of things that we consume. Uh, so if we feed ourselves with, with divisiveness and division and, and partisanship, then that's what is going to feed uh, and, and inform our consciences. But if we feed ourselves with the, the truth that's given to us from the church, then that's what's going to form our consciences. Our consciences are going to be formed no matter what. They are, in, in some sense, uh, water in that they're going to conform to the shape of the thing that holds them, Right. Now, in, in another way, it's not like water because it, there is an actual process and work done in forming the conscience. In fact, at the last election, I wrote a piece when I was blogging on Patheos um, about, about forming the conscience and relaying it to my experience in, as a college student in forming a pot, right? There is, there is resistance and there's effort that has to go into it, and there is patience and intentionality that has to go into forming it if we want it formed well, right? That's the whole thing. The church says that we need to do this with a well-formed conscience. Regardless, we're going to have our conscience formed by something. And we mentioned just briefly uh, in that this this quote that I bring up per- periodically from G.K. Chesterton out of his essay, Conversion in the Catholic Church, which he wrote in 1926. Um, this, this is something that, uh, that I want to bring back up 
on a regular basis because I think it points to something really true. And in that, uh, in that larger work, he says this, it's a very different matter when a religion, in the real sense of binding things, binds men to their morality when it is not identical with their mood. It's a very different when some of the saints preached social reconciliation to fierce and raging factions who could hardly bear the sight of each other's faces. It was very different when charity was preached to pagans who really did not believe in it, just as it is different now when chastity is preached to new pagans who do not believe in it. It is in those cases that we get the real grapple of religion— And it is those cases that we get the peculiar and solitary triumph of the Catholic faith. It is not merely in being right when we are right, as in being cheerful or hopeful or humane. It is in having been right when we were wrong. And in the fact coming back upon us afterwards, like a boomerang. One word that tells us what we do not know outweighs a thousand words that tell us what we do know. And the thing is all the more striking if we not only did not know it, but could not believe it. It may seem a paradox to say that the truth teaches us more by the words we reject than by the words we receive. So, uh, th- that again, that quote's from G.K. Chesterton, The Catholic Faith and Conversion, an essay in 1926. Um, to me, this is the crux of the matter. Uh, And it's one that I have to pay attention to. What are the things that the church says that, that I want to reject, right? What are those things that come and I'm like, Ooh, that doesn't sound right. I don't like the sound of that. Uh, I I think, and and then I begin to blame. I blame the person I heard it from. I blame the bishop for being a bad bishop. I blame the Pope for being a bad Pope. And I'm, I'm not necessarily looking at this specific instance. I think that's our general way of being. We saw it uh, from a number of people during the pontificates of John Paul II and and Saint, Saint Pope, Saint Pope John Paul II, uh, and of Benedict XVI. Um, and we see it again still today from a different set of people uh, from Pope Francis, where we hear something that doesn't quite feel right to us, and rather than taking the time to wrestle with it and look at it and allow it to, to form us and to, to really scrutinize it with an eye toward docility, uh, we just reject it out of hand. And so I, I want to talk today about one of those things for me, one of these things that uh, in my uh, experience was something very easy to reject out of hand. Uh, I... I and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, I rejected it because of where I heard it and what my estimation of that place was. And um, and so I just completely and out of hand rejected anything having to do with social doctrine. Uh, the, the social teaching of the church was something that I looked at with... Um, I don't think that contempt is the right word, but I certainly looked at with a great deal of skepticism and did not see in any way how it belonged in in religion or in faith. It seemed like something that was only political and that was being adapted for Christianity by people who didn't want to really grapple with the real demands of Christianity. Now, this was for me coming from the outside, coming from a Protestant tradition and seeing that in my 
uh, my context. And I'll, I'll share that story explicitly as we uh, get into this with our guest a little bit later. Um, but for me, that was one of those words that not only did I not know, but I could not believe. And it wasn't until after the fact, after my conversion into the Catholic Church, after that that decision that I'm going to form my conscience, after that that decision that I'm going to be docile to the Vicar of Christ and to my bishop in my specific area, it was at that point that it came back upon me and revealed to me the truth of it. So here, here's what I want to get at. Um, we're going to talk today with uh, uh, about this topic of Catholic social teaching. And the reason why is I think that um, we all have something to learn from this. Uh, we, we tend to think of Catholic social teaching merely as the social justice warrior or the bleeding heart um, and, and miss the fact that Catholic social teaching is a, a really broad umbrella that that breaks out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That second greatest commandment. That that this is um, kind of a, a big deal. It's central to our faith. It is one of the two great commandments, and and it is kind of an expression of how how do we live out that love your neighbor as yourself. So we're gonna sit here and and kind of marinate in it a little bit today. And I want to say to you, no matter who your bishop is, whether you agree with your bishop or not, there is something that that you can learn from them. And, and I would say specifically in the areas that you disagree with them, um, there's something that your spirit can be formed in because of them. Uh, I would look extra hard at those teachings that they're saying, because it could be that there is something that, that the Holy Spirit wants to give you through their ministry. Uh, specifically in these instances, when you have uh, a disagreement with someone, whether it be your bishop or another layperson, that's specifically the time to sit down and listen harder and see if there just might be something in there that's not merely uh, a disagreement, but something that your conscience needs to be formed in. So I'd encourage you uh, over these next uh, couple of couple of months, make a list. What are the things that you're going to do to form your conscience? And specifically, I would go and approach the documents of the church. Back on that Pathios blog, I have a number of of things that I did that year to form my conscience. Um, that and I'll post that to social media again. Um, but I would encourage you put together a reading list and begin to feed your. Uh, your conscience with the writings of the church. So today we're going to form our consciences a little by looking at the social teaching of the church, talking today with Mark Shea. Uh, He's a friend of mine, used to live uh, basically a neighbor. Yeah. And and then I moved to the outskirts of Canada and you stayed in the, uh, the beautiful northern suburbs of Seattle. Well, you know, Bellingham is our first line of defense against Canada. So, uh, It's important. I, I, I traded. I had this lovely view at my house of the Puget Sound, and I don't have that anymore. Uh, yeah. It's about, uh, what, gosh, now maybe eight miles down the road. Uh, but we do have this lovely view of Mount Baker, which is um, it, the, the French uh, explorers called it Mary Immaculate because it's always oh. white. 
because uh, I did not know that it's covered in a glacier. Um, and so it's also an active volcano. So it's kind of like if it, if it, if it ever does go off, is Which it, it will. is it the, uh, is it the steam from the, um, and the melt off from the glacier or the, the lava that's going to get to us first. And I, I really don't know the answer to that. Well, you know, there's always something to look forward to though. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we took the family up this uh, this last week to the highest point that you can get to by car on Baker called Artist Point. Took some pictures, put them up on social media. Um, oh, it was lovely, lovely place. Uh, we um, were you up past the snow line? Uh, we were not. This uh, there were a couple of places of snow, but for the most part, um, we were still a good distance away from it. In, okay. And, and you talk about the snow line, and I just want people to understand. Yeah, it's still covered in snow in late August um, because that's Baker for you. Yeah. It's a beautiful mountain. Um, I grew up, you know, with it in sight on a, on a clear day, you could see Mount, Mount Baker from, uh, from my high school. Uh, Yeah. And of course, you know, we say on a clear day and you get those in the summer, but the the rest of the year, it's just kind of a, kind of a toss up whether that's going to hit or not. Well, when you fly out of Seattle, you can see uh, Baker out one window of the plane, and you can see Rainier out the other. And and on a clear day, you can see you know what's left of Mount St. Helens, and you can see uh, Mount Adams and Mount Hood. And yeah, I grew up in Texas, so all of this is very different to me. But I I love it out here, uh, and so. Um, all of this geography lesson is just to establish, hey, uh, I miss miss going out to lunch with you. Um, but Me too. I first came uh, across you before we ever had the opportunity to meet face-to-face uh, as a, a convert in, uh, lived in the Diocese of Tulsa. And one of the people that I worked with there at the diocese um, gave me volume one to borrow, and I borrowed it for way too long. Volume one of Mary, Mother of the Sun, and it was one oh. one of the best treatises uh, I've I've really come across, even before or since, on uh, on explaining these difficult um, for for a evangelical convert uh, difficult doctrines to understand about Mary to the point that uh, I bought the you you've since put it all in into one volume. I bought them when you had those available. Uh, and gave them out to my Protestant family members. I'm like, here, I don't even want to explain it to you. Here's <laughs> here's here's Mark's book. Oh, Just, cool. I don't know if they've read it yet, but it's on their shelf staring at them. So maybe one of these days they'll pick it up. Okay. So Mark, Well, I hope that they do. Mark, you are uh, just a, a wonderful apologist. You've got numerous books out. Uh, from Mary, Mother of the Son, to the Heart of Catholic Prayer, to uh, the Commandments and the Beatitudes and a Joyful Life, the Work of Mercy. All of these are available uh, on your website. Um, well, on your old website. I'm assuming on the new website as well. Uh, uh, eventually, yeah. Mark, MarkPichet.com. You can also get them on Amazon uh, in most most uh, most scenarios. Um, yeah. The Mary, Mother of the Son, you can get on Amazon, but it, typically they've got you know, like one or two copies for $800 and it's a great book, but I'm, I'm not going to spend. Well, you can get it on Kindle too. Um, Mary mother of the sun is available on Kindle. So you've got a new book that's coming out, uh, later in, in this month, maybe early next month, which Uh, this month, which you don't, you don't have to get, uh, for $800. Uh, that's true. And this is coming from U city press, which is, uh, uh, the press for the focolare movement. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, we, we talked previously with uh, Charlie Camosi. He's got a great book there. They've also got this fantastic series, uh, new translation of the works of St. Augustine. Highly recommend the press. Uh, but you have this new book called The Church's Best Kept Secret, a primer on Catholic social teaching. Yeah. So let's take this one step at a time. Um, first, why is this the church's best kept secret? Why, why that, that term and title for it? Uh, it's the church's best kept secret, not because uh, the church is hiding it, but because we are blind to it. Uh, it's right there in plain sight. Uh, anybody can access it if they want to but they don't want to. <laughs> and for various reasons. Uh, the primary reason simply being that most people do not get uh, their social teaching, their moral formation from the church. Uh, they get it from uh, friends reruns and uh, Sean Hannity and... You know, the, the guy that they work with at the office or their brother-in-law or just anybody, but uh, the actual teaching of the church. Uh, so we've got a big fat volume of uh, certainly of the catechism, the Catholic church. There's also another big fat volume called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Catholic Church. And these, neither of these books are books that people curl up with on a rainy Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Right. Uh, uh, so consequently, there's, it's there uh, and it's accessible if you know where to look, but most people don't look there. Well, and let's, let's be honest. Um, the, the social teaching of the church is not a new thing. It's been around from the very beginning. You've got Right. The, the 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 fathers of the church themselves are saying things like, um, "the the extra pair of shoes rotting in your closet was stolen from the poor." Yeah, uh, and and you look at that and you're like, "Well, that doesn't sound very uplifting, and that doesn't make me feel like I'm growing in holiness." What? Why would you say such a thing? Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and, and so it's it, you know it's the kind of thing of if you are the person on the receiving end of that instruction and not the beneficiary of, of the, the work of mercy, uh, all of a sudden, it, it's just a really uncomfortable um, experience. And I think maybe even where, uh, where Chesterton comes and says, it's not that Christianity has been found, um, uh, tried and found wanting, but has rather been found difficult, difficult and left, and left untried. untried. Yeah, well, and there's a number of reasons why the... The thing is, is that the, the social teaching of the church uh, in terms of an attempt to organize it into a, uh, an organized body of teachings uh, is barely 100 years old. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that the, the teaching is not there and the tradition is not there. That goes all the way back to the New Testament. But the first pope to issue a social encyclical was Leo XIII in the 1890s. Uh, and he did it because uh, the church was beginning to grapple with the problem of uh, things like labor movements. Right. Uh, 
and the problem of an industrializing society uh, in which uh, uh, the, the, the technology was moving faster than the human ability to adapt to it. Uh, and so creating, uh, uh, you know, horrific, the, the kinds of conditions that would lead to things like the triangle shirtwaist factory fire that killed, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of women in the middle of New York city, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, children working in coal mines and just horrific working conditions and so forth. And so the church, Leo looked around and said, we have to respond to this. Uh, and so the first social encyclical uh, was written in the 1890s called Rerum Novarum. Uh, and then 25 years later, there was a, 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 another social encyclical called Quadrigesimo Anno, uh, which means 25 years later. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, then you've got John Paul II, who just keeping in, in that lovely creative naming convention gives us uh, Centosimus Anno. Yeah, Chagisimus Anos, which means 100 years later. Right. And uh, there's been uh, multiple social encyclicals. I list them all in, the, in, uh, in my book. But what it has resulted in is a body of teaching, uh, which is uh, organized into uh, four, what I call the four pillars of uh, Catholic social teaching. Uh, So the four pillars of Catholic social teaching are the dignity of the human person, the common good, subsidiarity, and solidarity. And if you think of these as, you know, the four legs on a throne, uh, you're getting the idea that these are not things that are in competition with one another. These are things that uh, organically uh, work together in harmony. But going to this picture of the four legs on a throne, they are in many ways opposite one another. And without both present, you end up out of balance. Right, exactly. And so just like the four legs on a throne, if if one leg is too short uh, or one leg is too long, uh, it doesn't work. And so uh, that's... That's the essence of Catholic social teaching. It is, is it embraces the both and. Right. And unfortunately, we live in a political culture uh, that tends to very urgently push for the either or. Well, and this is not, uh, a, we, we see it in a very particular way as being more pronounced these days, but it's not a new thing. No. Um, and, and to a point that you've in, uh, in, one of your books, and I don't recall which one, or maybe one of your blog posts, that uh, much of the heresy that springs up throughout the ages is an attempt to simplify a very difficult truth in the balance. Right. Heresy is always a quest for simplicity at the expense of reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the archetypal heresy, for example, was the Arian heresy. And the mark of a heresy is not that it's a lie. The mark of a heresy is that it's a metastasized truth. It's a, it's a cancerous truth. It's, uh, it's the attempt to take one thing and say, this is the only thing that matters. And so the Arian heresy is the archetypal heresy 
not because it asserted a falsehood so much as because it glommed on to one idea, the majesty of God the Father, and said, that's it. That's all there is. And anything else is in competition with that. So if we say that God the Son is God, that is blasphemy against God the Father. If we say that the Holy Spirit is God, that is blasphemy against God the Father. And that's how heresy works, is people become obsessed with a single idea uh, and attack the rest of the church's teaching. And so I tell an anecdote uh, in the introduction to the book. Uh, I was asked to come and give a talk about Catholic social teaching at at a parish. Uh, and when I came to talk about the four pillars of Catholic social teaching, uh, on the right side of the room, there was the peace and justice group. Mm-hmm. And on the left side of the room was the pro-life group. And those guys hated each other and just darted suspicious glances at each other and saw each other as enemies. I think I know what parish you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, the 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 irony of it, of course, is that in the church's thought, you guys are all on the same mission. Yeah, this is all one thing, and that is that's the problem that we face when we're approaching Catholic social teaching. Is what we tend to get in our polarized culture is people who will latch on to generally two of the four pillars of Catholic social teaching, depending on where they fall on the political spectrum. This proceeds from two different visions of what Catholic morality is supposed to be about. One vision of Catholic morality, the one that tends to be on the right, uh, primarily sees Catholic morality as having to do with our personal and above all sexual lives. On the other side are people who see Catholic morality primarily having to do with how it is we live in community, uh, how it is we care for the least of these and take communal responsibility for uh, the needs of the community. So on that side of the spectrum, which is typically identified with the left in in this country, um, what's focused on are things like the common good and solidarity, both of which have to do with those questions. Uh, And what Catholic teaching absolutely insists on is you cannot pit the pillars of Catholic social teaching against one another. That is not how they work. Yeah. We're talking today with Mark Shea. He's got a new book coming out on New City Press. It's called The Church's Best Kept Secret, a primer on Catholic social teaching. There's much more to come right after the break, so don't go anywhere unless you go and have a conversation with me over on social media. Come and join me, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Tell me about the first time you encountered Catholic social teaching, and Mark and I are going to share our experiences right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L.,
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Today we're talking with Mark Shea. He's got a new book coming out on uh, on New City Press called The Church's Best Kept Secret, A Primer on Catholic Social Teaching. And Mark, I just had to share with you um, my experience with, mm. with Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I came into the church in 2011. Before that, I had been in the Methodist denomination. And if you know anything about the Methodist denomination, um, maybe it's coming across your newsfeed or something along those lines, you you know that one of the things that characterizes them, the United Methodist Church, is that they are anything but united. Uh, depending on what <laughs> what specific congregation you go to, you may find vastly different theologies uh, regarding just the kinds of things we're talking about today. Which right. two sides, uh, which two things are they going to pick up? The dignity of the person and subsidiarity or the the common good and solidarity? And that really kind of describes my whole experience growing up, except it went beyond just the social teaching, and you saw that same kind of divide in the the um, theological teaching as well. And so the kinds of people that I encountered who would talk about the social teaching of, of Christianity were also the people who would deny those supernatural elements of theology, like virgin birth or the reality of miracles or the 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 truth of the incarnation and maybe just say one of these ancient heresies that maybe Jesus was just a really good person who after, because he was so good, was elevated to divinity. And so I would look at these people who were saying these things and I would say, okay, because I know that the theology is not correct, I'm just going to take everything they're saying and color it with that broad brush and say, I don't have to listen to these things about social teaching because you were so wrong in these other areas right. that it's no longer worthy of me even paying attention to it. Right. And, and so here I am, uh, a new Catholic. Uh, I wrestled with Catholicism for 10 years before I got to a place where I said, yes, I am willing to be docile to the church, even on the things that I don't fully understand, because I believe that the church is right. So I, I know my own weaknesses. I don't want to be the arbiter of right and wrong anymore, of what's true and not true. I'm going to say, right. I trust the church. I make myself docile to the church. And here I am. I'm coming in because I was so impressed uh, with some people who had evangelized to me, but also with with who Pope Benedict uh, was as Pope. Right. And, and then I had not been Catholic very long at all before I come across the Catholic teaching, the Catholic social uh, teaching of the church coming out of the mouth of Pope Benedict and realizing I can't just dismiss this anymore. I actually have to pay attention to it and give it, um, give it a second thought through the lens of docility. Right. Now you, you had a similar experience in terms of, uh, our, our origin story, right? If we're talking about, uh, superheroes, right? You had, <laughs> you had the origin story of coming from the evangelical church and I was bitten by a radioactive Jesuit. <laughs> and you came into the church, uh, as a Catholic, what was your turning point and first encounter with, uh, the social teaching of the church that you really, for the first time had to, uh, give it credence and, and put some weight into it? Well, it, it was a long process, um, and I was helped by the fact that when, when I 
uh, was coming into the church and, and before I came into the church, my introduction to the, the kind of social and moral teaching of the church came through people like uh, C.S. Lewis uh, and, and Chesterton, uh, above all. Uh, and much of what they have to say, I was, I was able to recognize. So, for example, uh, Lewis, uh, in his letters to an American lady, uh, uh, one of the things that he does is he sent her money for her medical ills. He was uh, famously very generous uh, and really believed that uh, that when you tithe, you should feel a pinch from it. Uh, and so he was always... <laughs> there's, a, there's a famous story about Lewis and Tolkien taking a walk somewhere on some walking tour and they met some... Uh, beggar and uh, Lewis as was his custom reached into his pocket and gave the beggar some money and <laughs> Tolkien said you realize he's just going to spend it on drink right to which Lewis replied I was just going to spend it on drink <laughs> 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 and uh, anyway um, in one of his letters uh, he remarks to the woman uh, that he thought it was barbarous that the United States didn't have a national health care system. Um, and those kinds of things got filed away uh, in my mind that, um, you know, Lewis didn't have any problem with this. Uh, he was he lived in a country that had a national health care system. Uh, it's still there. Uh, and it works just fine, you know. <laughs> And people have not been reduced to, you know, a socialist hellscape because of it. It's interesting uh, because, uh, and again, coming from conservative um, Methodist background, that that side of it, Lewis yeah. is is something of a uh, a folk hero. Uh, yeah. In in that tradition, and those are the kinds of things that that maybe we haven't heard from Lewis uh, because who reads the letters? I mean, come on, where, the the, <laughs> no, the novels are where it's at, man. I'm a super nerd. I read everything <laughs> that he wrote, but, um, but you know, so it was, it, that didn't, I mean, I didn't come away with that from that with some sort of organized system of thought. And to be honest, uh, uh, I was for a long time, uh, more or less just, uh, uncritically assuming as you did, uh, that uh, theological conservatism and political conservatism are coterminous and equal, uh, and that I had nothing to learn from, for example, Dorothy Day, right. uh, or uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, I just it was not something I gave a lot of thought to. I just made that equation uh living here in seattle uh that uh, uh theological liberalism uh equals heresy therefore liberals are heretics therefore i've got nothing to learn from people on that end of the spectrum uh but then as you did i started actually paying attention to what the church taught do you have a, do rather you have a, than 
Do you have a place or a, a memory of where it first pinched you and, you and you had that realization of, oh, I, I actually have to pay attention to this? Um, I think for me, the, the thing, the point where I realized that all was not well uh, was when, uh, it, during the Iraq war, uh, uh, it began, the stories of torture began to come out mm-hmm. and uh, my, you know, immediate, the, the place where I immediately went was, uh, the ends cannot justify the means, uh, and, uh, that it is the belief that the ends justify the means that totally undergirds every argument for abortion. Right. And so we, of course, as conservative Catholics, we obviously we reject that. And so I wrote a, I wrote an article basically talking about how, you know, justifications for torture were completely immoral for the same reason that justifications for abortion were. And I was shocked mm-hmm. to realize that I was way outside. <laughs> well, outside the camp. Uh, I was outside the camp and, and, uh, and of conservative Catholics. And outside that. the camp that, that you called home as well. Right, yeah. And that really surprised me. Uh, and so I thought, well, poor communication. I am a, I am a, <laughs> I, I, I admit it. I, there's something deeply Platonist in me that says, if you're just clear enough, right. Everyone, then, then people, they're going to understand. Then everyone will agree with you and understand, and they won't argue with you because that would be foolish. The, you know, the, 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 they just, if I could just put the right words to it. And then I'll convince them. I I tell you what, the one that got me that you wrote was the one about lying. Uh, and that one was just, yeah. uh, what do you mean it's never okay to lie? Um, <laughs> I mean, That's... surely surely there is some scenario where I can get away with this. What are you saying, Mark Shea? This is the catechism, man. <laughs> it is intrinsically immoral. Uh, it's not always gravely immoral. Right. But it's always intrinsically immoral. So, yeah, that was when I started to realize, and I, you know, at first I thought, well, I'll just, I'll write another thing on this and then people will get it this time. I just wasn't clear enough last time. But after about a decade, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it became clear to me that um, what I had really believed, which was, uh, we conservative Catholics are not cafeteria Catholics. We accept everything the church has to say. I began to realize that that wasn't true. And really that by nature of us being human and having a certain amount of pride within us, which is that, that capital sin, that, that sin which seeds all other sins, um, right. that we are always going to be at odds with the church on something. And sure. thus we are Absolutely. continually in a state of humility uh, yeah. which none of us are. I had a I had a Dominican priest one time who said that one of his professors at seminary said, everyone is a material heretic. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's a heretic about something. Yeah. You know, we're just, we can't, we're not always right. And um, so, but yeah, so that was when I first began to realize that I need to make a choice here. Am I going to listen to the church first or am I going to listen to my tribe first? Right. Uh, and so I 
decided that I was going to try to listen to the church first on everything. And, um, uh, and, and that, you know, that, that, that set me on a, a voyage of discovery. <laughs> so here's a, here's a question for you because you have, um, you have extensive experience, I would say in the church here in the United States, but you also have some experience with the church abroad. Do a you, bit, yeah. do you see, um, that, that same kind of dichotomy or, or the fact of the social teaching of the church being a secret, um, uh, that we keep from ourselves. Do you see that in, in other parts of the world as well? Or is that something that is more prominent, uh, here in America or here in the West? I, well, I think that by far and away, the U S uh, has the most trouble with it. Uh, I think that it's probably a problem everywhere. I, I see it some in Australia, but, but here's the thing. Um, one of the features of Catholic social teaching is the concept of structures of sin so what's the structure of sin? Well, what the tradition reveals is that sin doesn't just affect our hearts. It gets expressed in the things that we make. Uh, and one of the things that we make are gigantic social and geopolitical structures. We make organizations. So... To give an example, in the book of Acts, Paul goes to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the site of one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, and the great thing about wonders of the world, of course, is they're gigantic tourist traps. That's <laughs> what, and that's part of what the Temple of Diana was. Uh, it was this, you know, beautiful temple, the pride of Ephesus. Uh, and the site of uh, a cult uh, of Diana worship that centered around what appears to have been a meteorite. It was a stone that fell from heaven. And so they built the temple around it. And so Paul comes to Ephesus and starts preaching the gospel. And of course, <laughs> the message that Paul has is these are all vain idols. And, you know, abandon Diana and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, that didn't just put a crimp in religious worship of Diana. It also put a huge crimp in local businesses. Uh, and so Paul uh, gets uh, basically a giant riot ginned up against him, not by the priests of Diana, but by the local silversmiths uh, who are like, you know, if we let this guy go on, he's going to destroy our business. That is a structure of sin. The local silversmith guild and the entire economy of Ephesus was built around this temple. And so what a structure of sin does is it, makes it harder to be good. Uh, and, and you can, you know, we can see this throughout history. So our slave economy, for example, uh, two centuries ago, 
made it harder. Uh, and in fact, in so in many cases, uh, made it so hard that even people of real courage, like Thomas Jefferson, couldn't bring themselves to resist the the slave economy that he himself knew was evil. Yeah, uh, it was. He was the one that said, you know, that uh, uh, that he greatly feared uh, that God's justice would not sleep forever. And yet he never freed his slaves. Why? Because he was enmeshed in this structure of sin. So uh, all of that uh, is to say that our country has a lot of structures of sin uh, that that are deeply entrenched and make it hard for us to see certain things that other countries lacking those structures of sin, Catholics in those countries see those things much more easily. Well, and and interestingly, this, um, this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, just as we have our, our pet projects and our pet two pillars, we tend to see the deficiencies um, of those who hold the other two pillars. We tend to see those structures of sin on that side, but we tend to be blind to it on our side. And we tend to imagine <laughs> sins that aren't there sometimes. Yeah. We're talking today with Mark Shea. The new book is The Church's Best Kept Secret, a, a primer on Catholic social teaching, coming out later this month on New City Press. You can find out more information at newcitypress.com. Mark, thanks for being with us today. A pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Mark or you want to share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as always, there's extra content uh, for those who support the show through Patreon. If you want access to those extra segments, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click on the top right-hand corner of the page where you see a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon and pick the the reward tier that you want and, uh, and then benefit. Enjoy. So now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching. You can find out more information and get your own library free for 30 days by going to verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, and this is uh, this is a corollary and, and uh, in harmony with the, the Beatitudes. But we we're used to hearing the Beatitudes. We're not, I think, as as used to hearing this. Uh, this version of it. Yeah, we, we tend to like the Beatitudes because they're all the blesseds, but this one, Jesus has not only blesseds, but also woes. And so let's take a listen to this reading. Raising his eyes toward his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven. For their ancestors treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets this way. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And it's worth us sitting with these blessings and woes and asking, which side of this spectrum do I fall on? And and one of the things that, that stands out to me in the woes, woe to you who are rich now, for you have received your consolation. Do we find consolation and comfort in our riches, or like Mark was saying earlier in the show uh, of C.S. Lewis, do we let our charity, do we let our tithe, do we let our generosity pinch us just a little bit? Do we find our consolation in our wealth, in our riches, or do we allow ourselves to feel the pinch, to do what it takes to be generous, and to find our consolation in God? Do we find our satisfaction uh, in our food, or do we find our satisfaction in God? Or do we do we give ourselves the opportunity to feel hunger? To um, one, because we give until it hurts. Two, because of uh, of fasting and prayer. Where do we find our security? Do we find it in the things that we have and the things that we consume in the opinions of others, or do we find our security? fully and totally in the divine providence of God. And this is a hard thing to sit with because we typically think of being well-fed, being well-regarded, uh, having having material means as being blessed by God. That's something that we in, in the Western culture kind of see as, oh, I'm blessed um, because of these material things that I have. But what if that's not the case? What if these things... Uh, are just the result of our circumstance, and God is asking us and calling us to a different place. Can we calm ourselves and open our ears to hear the still small voice of God um, that may be calling us to deeper and more lasting things? Because that's the thing about all of these, uh, all of these things that are mentioned is that they are temporary. Uh, the poverty is temporary. Blessed are you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. Wealth is temporary. Woe to you who are rich now, for you have received your consolation. All of life is transient. Uh, last year, we we ended the, the show with that poem out of the breviary of, of St. Um, uh, Teresa of Avila. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing. God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. That's kind of, to me, the, um, the epitome and the, the distillation of this passage of Scripture. Our reading from church history comes from a, uh, a homily by St. Leo the Great. And this is on the Beatitudes. This is out of the Matthew uh, version, the Matthew section. And it's on blessed are the poor in spirit. It cannot be doubted 
that the poor can more easily attain the blessing of humility than those who are rich. In the case of the poor, the lack of worldly goods is often accompanied by a quiet gentleness, whereas the rich are more prone to arrogance. Nevertheless, many wealthy people are disposed to use their abundance not to swell their own pride, but to perform works of benevolence. They consider their greatest gain what they spend to alleviate the distress of others. This virtue is open to all men, no matter what their class or condition, because all can be equal in their willingness to give, however unequal they may be in earthly fortune. Indeed, their inequality in regard to worldly means is unimportant, provided they are found equal in spiritual possessions. Blessed, therefore, is that poverty which is not trapped by the love of temporal things and does not seek to be enriched by worldly wealth, but rather desires to grow rich in heavenly goods. The apostles were the first, after the Lord himself, to provide us with an example of this generous poverty when they all equally left their belongings at the call of the heavenly master. By an immediate conversion, they were turned from the catching of fish to become fishers of men. And by their own example, they won many others to the imitation of their own faith. In these first sons of the church, there was but one heart and one soul among all who believed. Abandoning all their worldly property and possessions in their dedicated poverty, they were enriched with eternal goods— And in accordance with the apostolic preaching, they rejoiced to have nothing of this world and to possess all things with Christ. Therefore, when the apostle Peter was on his way up to the temple and was asked for alms by the lame man, he replied, Silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. What is more sublime than this humility? And what could be richer? Than this poverty. Though Peter cannot assist with money, he can confer gifts of nature. With a word, Peter brought healing to the man who had been lame from birth. He who did not give a coin with the emperor's image refashioned the image of Jesus in this man. And by the riches of this treasure, not only did he help the man who recovered the power to walk, but also 5,000 others who believed the preaching of the apostles because of this miraculous cure. Thus, Peter, who in his poverty had no money to give to the beggar, bestowed such a bounty of divine grace that in restoring to health the feet of one man, he healed the hearts of many thousands of believers. He had found all of them lame, but made them leap for joy in Christ. That reading comes from a sermon on the Beatitudes by St. Leo the Great. And this is one of those challenges for us. How do we use the things that we've been given in such a way uh, that we can attain that blessedness that was promised by Christ? And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me and listen. Uh, It's always my pleasure to come and talk with you about things that are important for our faith life. This week's show was brought to you by Richard J. and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Find out more information by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing. God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.